Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series, Race and Democracy in Northeast Ohio, a collaboration with the School of Peace and Conflict Studies and the Center for Pan-African Culture. The project includes a 10-podcast episode series focused specifically on the intersections of race and democracy in Northeast Ohio. We're also planning community workshops on the topic of race and democracy and developing online curricular materials, such as activities, toolkit, and concept pages. This series is made possible with funding from Mark Lewine and the John Gray Painter Program. You can also check out our website to learn more about our upcoming events and to stay up to date on new content. You can find us at www.growingdemocracyoh.org. And joining me today is the lovely Shamara Arki. I'm so glad we got to do another episode together. Yes, this is so much fun and excitement to be able to talk about these things. Um, and, you know, we only have a limited time, but it really forces us to be um, intentional about the conversation that we're having with our guests. Yeah, I agree. And so you were the one that found the guest for this episode. And I guess my question for you is, what made you think that uh, Dr. uh, Well, I'll keep a secret for now. But what made you think that uh, that this would be such a fantastic guest to have? Um, So... What made me think that this was a great guest for our conversation? It definitely is a topic that intersects with race and democracy um, and something that we all know about, but it's not one of those things that are top of mind. Uh, When we think race democracy, we're thinking voting rights, we're thinking about uh, incarceration status, we're thinking about gerrymandering. And all of those things definitely exist at this intersection. But in addition to that, really having um, a clear understanding of the role that religion and spirituality plays um, in our government, even though there's this thing that we've all been taught that there's separation between church and state and there's no more prayer in schools and (laughs) all of these things that we hear and that we're socialized to believe. Uh, But this... um, Our guests really gave us the opportunity to um, combat that misinformation, right, with facts, which may not always be, you know, at the top or at the front of our American history textbooks. Uh, But they're still facts and they still happen. Yeah, they're inconvenient facts, right? Uh, And Mm -hmm. and that when we're willing to kind of look at the facts and... Um, I think release this idea that what we learned in, you know, in, in elementary history class is uh, constructed to uh, create winners and losers, that when we're willing to do that, that we can learn a whole lot more um, than, than what we did in school. So this is a great conversation today. Thank you for Absolutely. having me with me. <laughs> Thanks. So, 
So joining us today is Dr. Kiati Joshi, and Dr. Joshi is a public intellectual whose social science research and community connections inform policymakers, educators, and everyday people about race, religion, and immigration in 21st century America. She's lectured around the world and published groundbreaking scholarly and popular work in her field, while also serving as an advisor to policymakers and as a leader in the South Asian American community. Her most recent book is White Christian Privilege, The Illusion of Religious Equality in America. She's also the co-editor of a new book, Envisioning Religion, Race, and Asian Americans, and was an author and co-editor of Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, 3rd Edition, one of the most widely used books by diversity practitioners and social justice scholars alike. Thank you for joining us today. Okay, so thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Joshi. Um, we would like to just start off with a pretty simple background question, and that is, can you tell us a bit about yourself and, and how you identify? Uh, sure. Um, I'm really happy to be talking with y'all. Um, I identify, depending on the context, uh, as a South Asian American woman, an Indian American woman, um, a Gujarati woman, um, and I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I live in North Jersey now, right outside of New York City. Um, I am cisgender, uh, heterosexual, and able-bodied. And I, uh, there are multiple, even though I live in Jersey and I've lived in Jersey for 20 years, um, home is Atlanta and home is Ahmedabad, India, where I was born. Um, and I uh, would go back almost every summer. So thankful that my parents did that. And because of that, I'm fluent in my family language in Gujarati. So, um, yeah, there's a little bit about me. Thank you so much. Uh, we pride ourselves on um, getting intersectional folks to come and join us on this podcast. So thank you for sharing all about yourself with us. Appreciate that. Um, so just to give our listeners a little bit of background information, how would you define white privilege? Uh, white privilege are the advantages that white folks in the United States have uh, because of systemic racism because of the way whiteness has been built into our social and legal infrastructure over the generations. So those who are white today have it. They didn't do a darn thing to have it. They just have it because of the way society's been constructed, privileging whiteness. Yeah, I... <laughs> I want to ask a, a follow-up question about that, um, just because you know I'm reading several different things right now, uh, it, and in many of the cases, it kind of focuses on white privilege. And it seems as though there are many that portray white privilege as this kind of negative state of being, right? As though whites are something missing some piece of information that kind of prevents them from understanding their privilege. Or on the flip side, that white privilege can be seen as this positive state of being, where whites like learn through social interaction, either you know, explicitly or implicitly that there's something owed to them. And I'm just wondering, does that distinction matter? And, uh, you know, and if, and if not, or if so, is it kind of different in U.S. context versus outside the U.S.? So I, I think that um, everybody can have difficulty in understanding white privilege 
because we've not been taught to see those advantages. And sometimes when I'm doing workshops, I will use the phrase, I will use the words advantage and disadvantage instead of privilege and bias. And that's just so what I'm saying can be heard. Because for a lot of people, they hear white privilege. And then, of course, I talk about white Christian privilege, which really <laughs> people up in arms, you know, um, and Christian privilege. And I'll talk about that, you know, distinction in a minute. But, um, you know, it's because we did not learn real United States history. Uh, people don't understand, A, because we didn't learn United States history, real United States history. And B, because we've not been taught to see these privileges and the advantages, people have a hard time um, understanding today, right? So when you, when I'm doing workshops and I have somebody who grew up working class poor and who's white, will say, I don't have privilege. And I'll say very gently, depending on the context, whatever, but you may not have class privilege, but you have race privilege. And most of the time, folks haven't even had a chance to ponder that. Or I'll have someone Jewish and they'll be like, no, I face anti-Semitism. I said, yes, and you can have white privilege, right? And so it's helping folks kind of, you know, pull the social identities apart to be able to see them individually, even though they're acting out intersectionally every day, you know? And um, the concept of advantage, disadvantage exists around the world, right? Um, race looks very different in different parts of the world. So we can talk about race in the United States and we can talk about Brazil, but we can't talk about it in the same way, right? But colorism exists around the world. And we can talk about how usually it, what's advantaged, lightness and whiteness is rightness, <laughs> is what I say to my students, right? Um, and then if we're talking about religion, you know, then that gets into a different category, which I'll wait to do. But um, so, so race may look different and white privilege may look different, but the concept of advantage and disadvantage, unfortunately, exists everywhere. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and so I know I want you to talk a little bit about your work. Um, and to tee that up a little bit, really focusing on the intersection of race, religion, um, and even thinking about immigration as we talk about democracy. Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit more about your work, and then I definitely want to get into that new text, White Christian Privilege, which you say is different than Christian Privilege. So tell us a little bit about that, too. Yeah. So um, white, the book, White Christian Privilege, that I wrote is probably... Well, it's both a personal and professional project. Um, growing up as a little brown Hindu girl in Atlanta, Georgia, um, I didn't always fit in. People were like, well, you're not black and you're not white. So we like, what are you? You know, and then on top of that, my family and I, we would say we were Hindu. And so it's like, oh, my goodness, what is going on? Um, but I also, you know, on a very serious level, faced a ridiculous amount of bullying and harassment um, for my skin color, for the way I smelled, because of the food I ate, because of my name, because I went to India in the summers, um, just everything. And, uh, and so that was really, you know, really, really tough and it has shaped me. And it's really the reason I work in teacher education 
and work on anti-bias, anti-racist education, because I just don't want kids to have to go through what I went through. It's just, you know, that's not what education should be about. Um, but through those experiences, there were times where it's not that I was being, some of those experiences, it's not that I was being discriminated against. It's that, it's that I didn't have the secret passwords to know what was going on. And so that was the Christian advantage, as was the Christian privilege or the white privilege that I didn't have. So one specific example I can give you um, in ninth grade, and by the time I was in ninth grade, I mean, my self-esteem was shot. I did not do well academically. Um, and, and uh, you know, so when I didn't understand something, I just internalized it, right? I just, it was like, oh, well, it's me. I just don't understand things. But my teacher was talking about, my English teacher was talking about, it was teaching us about similes and metaphors. And she talked about, well, you all know the story of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, we can see how this is this and this is this. Well, I didn't know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Um, and by the way, in public school or private school, it's fine to bring that up. It's, you can use, you know, biblical literature to, to teach, you know. Uh, so there was no issue in terms of the Constitution. I, I was in an independent school, so it was different anyway in a private school. But in that moment, if my English teacher would have simply explained what Good Samaritan was, there would be no problem. But the Christian normativity was that, well, everybody knows, what the Good Samaritan story is. And as a child who was Hindu, um, where was I going to learn that if you didn't teach it to me? Right. So, um, you know, that's what I mean by knowing the secret passwords. And that's what privilege is about. You have the secret passwords that those who don't have, aren't part of that identity don't have. Right. So this project which is both a personal and professional one. Actually, NYU Press gave me a lot of leeway and I have a lot of personal stories and stories from my students and the other people in the book, um, which you don't always see in a quote unquote academic um, project, but they understood what I was trying to do and felt you know, the editor was really great and felt like, no, 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 this is the, what needs to be told. And it's really resonating with people. And it's really a great way to learn, right, is stories and storytelling. So um, it's both a personal and professional project. But what I was really trying to do, y'all, is provide language, language to name things so that we have a better understanding of what's going on, because so much of privilege is invisible, and so really I'm out to make that which has been invisible, visible, you know, so that then we can actually um, deal with things. And I, I do make a distinction. I try to be accurate and talk about Christian privilege when I'm talking about Christian privilege, meaning, you know, anyone who identifies as Christian in the United States, including Christian communities of color, have Christian privilege. And then there's race, which is such a powerful organizing principle in our country that, you know, all of that still is under a white Christian supremacy. So, you know, an African-American Christian does not have the same level uh, of Christian privilege that a white American Christian does. And that's why I make that distinction, because race is you just can't take it totally out. But Asian Americans, African Americans, Hispanic, biracial, multiracial, Native, who identify as Christians, certainly have Christian privilege. 
So I, I, just a quick follow-up. It seems like many people see privilege as, or I mean, I guess identity as like blankets where like I wear a white blanket and I'll wear a Christian blanket or I'll wear a, you know, whatever it is blanket. But really it sounds like what you're saying is that instead of that, that there's intersections where yes, there may be white privilege and white Christian privilege, but that, you know, these intersections of race and religion affect individuals in such a way where black Christian privilege does not look even remotely like white Christian privilege because race has interacted in such a way that um, it, it, it isn't maybe as uh, important or powerful, uh, and, and I don't know if that's the right word <laughs> for this scenario, but uh, as a powerful an impact uh, that, that adding that Christianity doesn't have as powerful an impact on individuals that are not white as they do on individuals that are white. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, so for example, I think a specific example would help the listeners, right? So listen, um, you know, we don't see white churches being burned down. Right. It's black churches um, in St. I think it was St. Emmanuel's is St. Emmanuel's um, in Charleston, South Carolina. I may have the name incorrect there. I apologize. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't white parishioners being shot down. It was black parishioners. Right. Um, so it's they're Christian, but in the eyes of some Christians. Right. It's it's they're not Christian uh, or they're not the right kind of Christian. Right. So that's something we see, you know, in the book, I talk about Christian privilege is really stuff at the individual level. I talk about Christian normativity, which is stuff at the cultural societal level, things where, you know, just it's Christian language is just so normative. So everybody's like, well, you know, here's my Bible. Well, this is here's the Bible like, oh, that book. Oh, it's the Bible of right. And, and just the way that Christian language uh, or, uh, yeah, Christian terminology, I should say, not language, is just part of the English language, right? Some of this is not about right and wrong. Some of it is, rest assured. But some of it is not. But it is about pointing out the ways that Christianity is normative so that we can see why uh, other religious minorities are facing the issues they face, right? Um, for example, and the, the example I gave about um, the churches, right, that's more at the institutional level where I talk about like Christian hegemony. But another example where we see a difference in terms of race is if we think about, you know, one form, one example of Christian privilege is the idea of how one prays, right? Well, uh, and what's considered normative. Well, what's considered normative for praying is what we see depicted is sitting in a pew, hands folded, right? Um, now rest assured black Christians also sit in a pew sometimes with hands folded, but the church services about praying are entirely different when it comes to white America and, and, and black America in terms of Christianity. Right. And, and this is pretty obvious in general, but it was particularly obvious when we saw all the focus on pastor Jeremiah Wright um, during um, the first ele um, election of President Obama, then candidate Obama. And what Jeremiah Wright was preaching was seen as unpatriotic and absolutely disliking America instead of understanding black liberation theology, right? Well, no, he's doing this, so he's anti-America. No, no, no. But just because it's not done in a white 
church that way it's not seen. It's seen in a different light, right? So we see these distinctions pointed out. There's a reason why a Korean church uh, in North in North Jersey was um, was um, vandalized. But I haven't really, you know, heard about white churches being vandalized, right? So the community is Christian, but, right? And we haven't even started talking about all of us who aren't Christian <laughs> and all that goes on with the Hindus and the Muslims and the Sikhs and the Jains and the Jews and everybody, right? And then we also have the atheist and agnostic and humanist. So, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> Yes, I think that that is so illuminating to think about the impact of uh, white Christianity and systems and institutions versus black Christianity. Um, and, and it is more of a social position as someone who was raised um, as a, a Christian, but I didn't, but raised as a Christian Hebrew Israelite, there are still some of those things that I experienced as a young black person in a space of worship which I use today in my classrooms to call in my black students, because that's something that's going to make them feel like they're seen and they're heard. And it's not traditionally used in the classroom, but in the juxtaposition of that, I have to explain my pedagogy <laughs> because it's not this uh, traditional structural thing, right? That's reflective of this uh, Christian hegemony that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and you know, real quick, there was something you just said reminded me in, in my book. I talk about one example um, where, you know, we see, you know, you know, sometimes conflicts arise. Right. So, for example, on college campuses, we'll have the multicultural center or office, you know, and I talk about um, an incident that a student affairs professional shared where, you know, um, in this particular case, after the African-American students really saw this as their space and wanted to to decorate it for Christmas. But then that was pretty off-putting for some of the other religious minorities, right? But so how do we reconcile that? Well, you know, we do need to take into account that Black folks have Christian privilege and you're going to have to be able to see that. And I recently gave a lecture um, a couple of weeks ago where I had an African-American faculty member walk up to me and say, you know, thank you, because I've really never considered my Christian identity as an advantaged identity, although it makes so much sense to me the way you explain it, you know, and I, I really appreciate you pointing this out. And I thanked him for sharing with me because I have also come across, you know, black folks who don't want to deal with this. Like they don't want to they're like, no, we're not talking Christian privilege. And I specifically, I know of not being invited to universities <laughs> because the folks in charge will, you know, no, we're not doing this. And I can understand that. I mean, it's a complicated relationship there and people have to come to terms with things, you know, um, but it's interesting uh, how it gets played out. And religion is so personal. It is so personal, of course, you know, um, and it takes some people some time. And that's what happens in general about privilege is that, and you have to give people time to process. You can't just bring it up and accept some, expect somebody to just be like, oh yeah, it takes time. Yes, that's that good dissonance that folks are having to deal with. <laughs> 
that got to deal with these things that I've learned in my worship space and how it doesn't always align with these other things that I've learned out. You mentioned earlier about the process of coding and decoding. And so I think that that's really key as we begin to think about um, dismantling systems of privilege and advantage and how we begin to do that, we have to start with ourselves. Um, and so in starting with ourselves in thinking about white Christian privilege in the United States of America, um, I had the privilege and honor of hearing you speak a few weeks ago at the WPC or the White Privilege Conference. And you walked us through some examples in history where these are things that show up in our textbooks and our young people are taught and they're taught to recite it. And some of us who are not young people anymore, we still hear these things. <laughs> And they now, right, dealing with that dissonance, they trigger something different. So you talked about like the doctrine of discovery, manifest destiny, and even the uh, concept around Ellis Island and what it means for immigrants, quote unquote, to be processed through, but then really comparing and contrasting that to the story of the Great Migration, which I know that um, Casey and I both use Isabel Wilkerson's work with our students. So can you talk us just through, I know we don't have a lot of time to go over like a American history, <laughs> but just a couple of highlights. Yeah, well, yeah, a couple of the highlights are is that, um, first of all, you know, we are, if you go to school in the United States, you learn in first grade that this country was founded on the ideals of religious freedom, which is just not the entire story and partially untrue, you know, in that the Puritans came here seeking religious freedom for themselves. They weren't in it for everybody. They were just in it for themselves, right? Um, and we know that because of what was done to the indigenous population um, and how they were considered to be uncivilized and the Puritans were civilized. And that idea has carried through constantly. And we, we see it up to even present day, the way that sometimes Islam and Hinduism and Sikhism are talked about in popular culture. But this, this idea um, that we also learn in schools about how um, the you know, Puritans came and built this country and they took the land from sea to shining sea and that they were ordained by God to do so, right? So that going back to the idea of the doctrine of discovery um, was a series of 1600, a series of papal bulls that came out in the 1600s that basically said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that um, if you are an explorer, which we call colonizers, uh, and you come upon land that is not owned by a Christian monarch, i.e. not claimed by a Christian, it's yours for the taking, right? I mean, that undergirds manifest destiny, big time, right? So this idea that has been put into education and everyone's learned it like well no this is this was our land for the taking because we were the civilized you know i say we but i i always say i would not have been included in that we back then um and you know it was theirs for the taking and this is what we've been told all our lives so you know when you've been told something your whole life and you're 12 years old on all of a sudden come across different information, that's one thing. And when you're 32, it's a whole never thing. And when you're 52, it's a whole different ball of wax, right? And so that's what we're up against here. And in general, 
you know, people are realizing we haven't learned real United States history. We also haven't learned, we've learned some U.S. history events, but haven't learned the full facets, all the facets, if you will. So um, I can bring up very quickly just two immigration acts to show you just how whiteness and Christianity is built into our legal infrastructure, okay? You you take the Immigration Act of 1917, which was also referred to as the Bard Zone Act, and it created a Bard Zone from present-day Iran through South Asia, India, Pakistan, Nepal, into Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, these countries. In 1917, if you were from this part of the planet, you were no longer allowed into the United States. We just close the door. Imagine a door shutting. Okay. Now, people coming from these countries in terms of their religious backgrounds are, you know, Jain and Sikh and Hindu and Muslim, some Christians, some Jews, Zoroastrian, followers of Shinto, Tao, so on. Then we fast forward to the Immigration Act of 24, which is actually an amendment to the Immigration Act of 21. This one is focused on southern and eastern europe and what we did is congress said that only three percent of the population based on the 1890 census of people coming from the countries of southern and eastern europe would be allowed in so we're talking italy poland um the former czechoslovakia our baltic states latvia lithuania estonia parts of russia greece and when you look at the religious backgrounds of those folks we're talking Catholic, Jewish, and Eastern Orthodox, not Protestant. So simply taking just 1917, putting it together with 1924, we Congress was socially engineering our demographics to skew white and Protestant. If you go to either immigration acts, you will not see one word about religion, not one word. Indeed, we can't. But when you look at the impact of the law, it is clear, right? Now, in school, kids do learn about the Immigration Act of 24, but they don't get this piece of it, right? And we know that um, Jewish folks and Catholic folks faced a tremendous amount of discrimination upon immigration to the United States. One thing that sets those immigrants separate apart from the Asian immigrants is those coming from Southern and Eastern Europe were allowed to become citizens of this country. They were legally white, even though socially not accepted as white. They were legally white because they could become citizens. But Asians were considered ineligible for citizenship, aliens ineligible for citizenship. That was the terminology given. And this all went back to the 1790 Naturalization Act that declared you had to be a free white man to be a citizen of this country. So that's just one instance. And African-Americans get the right to citizenship with the 14th Amendment and then the 1870 Citizenship Act. And, you know, even religion played a role there. Religion played a role there. We have primary source documents out of California that show that, well, it's okay that they're getting citizenship because they've accepted Jesus Christ. But the red man and the China man, referring to indigenous peoples and the Chinese, should not get citizenship. So religion became, Christianity became the fulcrum. 
I, that's so fascinating. I mean, it never occurred to me. Uh, obviously, I, I, I'm aware of how we kind of distribute our immigration by by country or region, but but that that is social engineering, um, not only by race, but definitely by by religious and you know in, uh, you know uh, ethnic um, identities. Now, so I'm curious. This so the series of the podcast that we're recording now is race and democracy, but I mean, so much of what you do is at this intersection of race and religion. And I'm curious to hear what you think is kind of the most important aspect when we're thinking about this confluence of race, religion, and democracy. And I mean, just the hearing, hearing everything that you've just said, it really makes me think that all of these topics that, that you talk about in, in Ohio, we have this bill that's anti-divisive concepts, right? Or or many people have li- labeled it the anti-critical race theory bill, which it's, I mean, uh, those things are the same. Ohio too. Okay. Yeah. They're everywhere, aren't they? Yeah. They're, they're everywhere. But it's so, I mean, how is this move to keep this discussion about divisive concepts like how we have socially engineered, you know, our, 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 are the entire uh, segment of people that are considered citizens in the United States. Why is that so uh, important for folks uh, to kind of fight back against right now if we're concerned about, you know, this confluence of race, religion, and democracy? Well, you know, the, uh, and all of this is um, about democracy. I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, I talk about in the book are some specific free exercise cases. Um and um, I couldn't, I didn't have a chance to talk about this in the presentation because I could only do so much. But there was, um, there was a, there's a concept that you'll see um, the justices and lower court d- uh, judges use, which is the idea of being facially neutral, right? So um, in our democracy, we, there's a sense that, well, we're facially neutral. But actually, when you look at it, it's pretty obvious. Facially neutral is white Christian privilege. Right. Because, for example, when you look at the free exercise cases, it's uh, very clear the court, the high court, the Supreme Court rules um, against religious minorities around um, rituals that are so not understood by the Protestant eye and by Protestant faith specifically. Right. If it was then it wouldn't even be an issue. And for example, the issue of head covering, you know, um, Jewish folks have had to fight for it. Sikh folks have had to fight for it. If Protestant Christianity had something about head covering, we wouldn't be fighting for this, right? So just to kind of look at the things that are facially neutral and to look at, well, what is American? For example, um, you know, uh, if you take President Biden's inauguration, I mean, there was Christian normativity, Christian hegemony all over it, right? And they are out of uh, over most of our public rituals, if you will. Um, they are steeped in Christian faith, right? During President Biden's speech, he did one thing that was just fantastic. I mean, I think he did many things that were fantastic. But when it comes to the idea of Christian privilege, he said, da, 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 da. St. Augustine, a patron saint in my church, and then went on. See, that was good because he didn't assume that everybody knew who that was. You know, he 
this may have been the presidential inauguration, but this was his inauguration. He has every right to do that if that his faith is important to him. I mean, I would have arguments with people saying why, you know, it was okay that he did that. And I said, but here's something he did really well. He didn't assume that everybody knew what that meant. And that's what some of this is about. You know, that's what some of this is about. So I kind of forgot what you asked about, but um, that's what I'll say. <laughs> No, I think you answered the question perfectly. I, I mean, so as someone uh, that I'm not Christian, I'm I'm agnostic. Um, I also don't get many of the, I don't know these passwords. Right? <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, I'm curious about you said earlier where you were talking about that there's more than you know just one religion, and then there's also atheists and agnostics. I mean, is there a special kind of privilege that even white agnostics and white atheists enjoy where, you know, they can have some cover in doing things that, you know, that that if you're of a different race or ethnicity and agnostic and, and atheist, that you just, you don't have that, that advantage. Yeah. So a couple of things about that. I mean, some atheist and humanist and agnostic folks would like to talk about religion privilege. Right, which absolutely exists because religion, and we've seen it in the latest Supreme Court cases. I mean, religion, as a legal scholar has referred to it, is, you know, has MFN status, most favored nation status, right, over, I think, all the other um, identities and civil liberties. Um, and so they absolutely are right to, you know, have those issues. And I think some would take issues with some of the things in my book because, again, their fight is. Like, well, why is religion there in the first place? At the same time, some have grown up in a Christian family, so they do know those passwords, even though they may not believe in those things anymore, right? So that is important to consider. I think that, you know, I'm very aware of the, the discrimination that does exist against folks who don't believe in any higher uh, belief system, if you will. Um, I teach in teacher education, and I had a student a couple of years ago who um, was just a fantastic student leader, especially in the um, atheist club on campus. And um, she came to me, and she wants to be a second grade teacher, and she's like, Professor Joshi, I can't really put all those leadership skills I learned on my resume saying that I was part of that club, right? And I'm like, nope, don't do it. Right. Because people who don't have religion are seen as amoral, are seen as not OK, not good. Oh, how could you be a good second grade teacher? I mean, it's ridiculous. But she had faced enough resistance she knew and was just seeking confirmation from me about like, I'm not putting that on my resume. And I'm like, yeah, don't do it. Right. And so that's and that's very much out there. That's very much out there, you know. And the other thing is, and what you brought up, is religion is racialized in our country. So, for example, with the way I look, doesn't matter, I'm Hindu. After 9-11, I was seen as Muslim. Anybody with brown skin like this, hair like this, you're Muslim, right? Um, and and so, yeah, if, if I say I'm an atheist, people are going to be like, what? Right? Um, so that part absolutely is there because of the racialization of religion in our country. Yes, and just to add to that, thinking about that concept around morality, 
right? And so as thinking about Black people in the States, for us not to identify as Christian um, is one thing, but then for us to identify as agnostic or atheist, it's automatically turned into, oh, well, you must be worshiping the devil, right? So there's that automatic placement that goes on that socially because, um, you know, as we know with Black people in Christianity, particularly those of us who are descendants of ones who survived, it was used as, as a way to, to make the, the slaves docile, right? So sometimes today in 2022, <laughs> the state would like to impose Christian hegemony on Black people so that we can be more docile. And that looks like people like Reverend Al Sharpton going to Ferguson telling them not to riot, not to tear things up, right? So it may have this um, undercurrent in it, and it may, it, it intersects. There's so much conversation around, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. But when we talk about intersecting identities, um, religion and spirituality is not something that always comes to the forefront because it's not always something that we can see, but it is systemically a way that has been used to keep people of color out of particular spaces. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? Christianity has been weaponized for centuries. I mean, and, and, you know, there are those who can see white Christian privilege and who want to see it. You know, one time I was asked, you know, who did you write this book for? Who's the audience? And I said, I saw over the last decade when I would share about the Immigration Act of 1917 and the Immigration Act of 24, people were curious. People were like, are you kidding me? Like, no way. And I'm like, wait, like, no, seriously, I'm not lying. You can go look it up, but I'm not lying. Right. And, and I would share other things in public presentations over the, and I saw that there was a real hunger to have this information because you have a lot of people who do believe in working to make our country more just, but they don't have the knowledge They They want that knowledge. They want those bits of information that they can share. They just didn't know have it, right? So I wrote this for those who are seeking information to better do the work in building a more just country, right? In making that more perfect union. Um, somebody's like, it's not for somebody, you know, the Trump voters. I'm like, they're not going to open it up after they just see the front page. They're just going to send me hate mail as they have just based on this. And because you can look me up and Google me and see this is how I look. So the assumption must be that I don't like this country and that I should go back to where I came from, which is what people have said, which was unfortunately to be expected in, in the climate we're living in and writing a book like this. Yes, you were, you were brave, but, but I, you've, shared things that are important to say and important for people to read. So we'll include for our listeners a link to the book as well. Dr. Joshi, thank you so much for coming on with us. It was a real pleasure having you. Thank you so Agreed. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Dr. Shamara Arkey and my co-host this week was Dr. Casey Boyd-Swan. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio in Cleveland, Ohio. This series is supported by Mark Lewin and the John Gray Painter Program. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the podcast, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, 
live chat, and swag featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com backslash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about race and democracy.